Good morning. I hope to get through this this morning without too much sniffling. Allergy season has finally hit me, <clears throat> and uh, I hate it. Um, what do you give to a world that has everything? Does it feel like to you, I think it does at least for me, but doesn't it feel like that we today, both culturally and socially, are now just too darn smart for our own good? You ever think about that? You know, the age that we live in right now is known as the information age. We have every, uh, every piece of information, every known resource that has almost ever existed through archaeology. We've, we're, we're finding more and more still today. But we have all of these resources at our fingertips, and yet we still cannot answer the most basic and foundational questions about our existence. When I say we, I mean mankind as a whole. I think as Christians, we look at the Bible and we can find those answers. But as mankind, as humanity in general, we struggle with things. We also live in an era of world history when we are as connected to one another as ever thanks to things like Facebook and the internet and cell phones. But yet we are lonelier than ever. Over the past week, we have seen, I'm sure you've seen in the news, several um, famous people who have committed suicide because of depression and the loneliness that they feel in their lives. After that, I saw several posts on Facebook from friends and family members talking about their own personal struggles with depression and uh, with suicidal thoughts. And while this is not a lesson or a discussion about suicide or depression in general, it does, however, speak to the condition of mankind and the loneliness that we feel. See, the issues that we face today haven't changed from the time of Jesus and the time of Paul and what we see in Athens in Acts chapter 17. If you want to go, go ahead and turn over there. Athens was considered the, the focal point of, of knowledge, of science, of, of, um, of arts and humanities. That, that's where it came from. Greece, Athens... Turn over and look, uh, if you're in Acts 17 already, look at uh, verses 16 through 21. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. 
Now all the Athenians and foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So the last verse tells us there that they were still seeking something. All of this knowledge that they had, every day it says that they spend their time doing nothing except telling or hearing something new. That was the drive of Greek culture, was to learn. We get a lot of what we have today in terms of education, government structure, all of those sorts of things from the Athenians because of all of the work and, and, and study that they put into it. The Greeks, not just the Athenians, but the Greeks and the Romans who took over after them. Now, the same thing is still going on today. We have the internet. We have access to all of this knowledge that the, the Greeks had because we can go and Google it. We have things in our houses now called Alexa or smart devices where you can just ask them a question. Hey Alexa, how many kids does this person have if it's a celebrity? And she'll answer you. We were watching America's Got Talent the other night and somebody mentioned Heidi Klum had four kids. And I said, I, I got on the little Alexa remote for our Fire TV. I said, Alexa, does, does Heidi Klum have four kids? And she answers back, yes, and here's all the information. You have it on your phone, Siri. You can ask them any question, including how much wood could a woodchuck chuck if a woodchuck could chuck wood. They will give you an answer. But we still are seeking the same thing that mankind has been seeking since the garden. Now, I want to tell you um, a quick thing um, here about the, the Areopagus, right? The Areopagus is a hill. If you've ever uh, been to Athens, um, you probably have, have visited this site. But this hill belonged to Ares. He was a Greek god. Or uh, also, he's also known as Mars, uh, who is the Roman version of, of Ares. Um, this hill, Ares Hill, Areopagus, that's what it means, uh, Arius Pagos, is the hill of Ares, is also referred to by the Romans as Mars Hill. Perhaps you've heard that name before as well. It is called this because, as the Roman myth- mythological story goes, Mars had uh, slayed the son of Neptune uh, for the attempted violation of his daughter, and he was then tried for the murder uh, there on that hill before twelve judges. And this place was the location where the judges convened who, by appointment of some other god named Solon, had jurisdiction of capital offenses such as uh, murder, arson, poisoning, malicious wounding, and breach of established religious usages. The court itself that met there was called the Areopagus from the place where it sat. Now, Paul was asked to come to this hill. He was not asked to come to this hill to defend himself before judges. From what I understand, the judgment side of things was more of a mythological um, thing than more of a man thing. Um, but people gathered in the, on that hill to discern things related to religion and science and knowledge. They, they gathered here to talk about it, basically. And so Paul was asked to come here to set forth his opinions on divine subjects to this great multitude of people. Because they had all come here 
to hear things. And this day they came to hear Paul. So clearly they haven't found everything. Because if they had found everything, and same thing today, if we had found everything, if we knew everything, then we wouldn't still be looking for something. So what are we looking for? I think we're looking for answers. I think we're looking for purpose. We're looking for hope. We're looking for love. The last of which is relationship. We're looking for companionship. We're looking for relationship. We're looking for acceptance. Whether that be in in marriage form or friendship form or in a spiritual sense. So this morning I want us to look at Paul's sermon on Mars Hill in Athens. And I want to look at this in um, kind of verse by verse in a way. And, and consider the questions that people ask today and then. Either it's something that we ask internally or possibly it's something externally. Related to those foundational and basic questions about life. So we begin at the start of Paul's sermon. As he addresses his audience here on Mars Hill. And we want to look at one important thing that he witnessed as he traveled about the city. Look at Acts chapter 17, verses 22 through 23. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. And now he addresses the first question that we all have asked at some point, or maybe we're still asking, where did we come from? Now I know Dale's thinking, my mom, because that's how Dale thinks. I came from my parents. I'm talking on a more grander scale. Where did we come from? Let's look at uh, verses 24 through 25 here. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. God doesn't need us to exist. We need Him. That's something that we have to understand about God in general. and something that the Athenians and the Romans and anyone who worships an idol doesn't understand about God. See, this is foundational to Paul's sermon and the argument to the audience. And it's this centralized point that I believe caused many of them to convert. In simple words, Paul is saying, you make and you craft all of these gods. I think it's somewhere in the thousands of gods that they had. But yet the God that you don't know, the one that you made an altar to, this God that you don't know, he made you. He's the creator. He's the originator of all of this. These other idols depend on you to exist, to move around and to be seen. But yet, the God that you don't know doesn't depend on you. Think about it. 
You can go all the way back to the, to the golden calf that was crafted at the, at the base of the mountain. They had to create that image in order to worship it, for it to be seen, for it to be known. Before that, people weren't saying, oh, you know what, there's a great golden calf that's, that's leading us out of Israel here, or out of Egypt here, you know, it's, it's up there, you can't see it, so we're just going to create this so that we have something to, no, they needed something to worship. They knew they needed someone or something to worship, and so they created it. And the same thing goes with idols that existed in the ancient world, and in many cases, the idols that exist in our lives today. We create them, we give them life. Because we give them attention and we give our focus to them. Look at Psalm 96, uh, verses 4 through 6. Um, and as, you, as you turn there, just we're going to be going back and forth between Acts 17 and Psalms. There's a lot of connection here, so if you want to keep a finger back in Psalms as we're going back and forth, or a ribbon or whatever you have, um, just, just do that. Um, Psalm 96, verses 4 through 6. For great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the people are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before Him. Strength and beauty are in His sanctuary. You see, David references all other gods. Is David saying that there are other gods? No. He is saying that people worship other things, but God is over all. All of the things, all of the little idols that have been created, if you look at Athenian mythology and Roman uh, and Norse mythology, all of these things, the God of thunder. You hear thunder, you see lightning in a storm, and you think, where did that come from? And so they make something up. Well, it must be this guy up, up there hammering out lightning bolts. Sure, makes sense. Okay. I don't see how that makes sense, but I guess in their mind it does make sense. Nonetheless, they see something and realize it comes from somewhere, and so we have to do something about it. We have to worship someone about it. But if you take all of the idols that have been created by man to represent something in the world, guess what? God created it. The true God is the one that is above all. So today, our modern idols or, or gods, things like technology, social media, TV, sports, pornography, activities, time in general, these are all things that are idols in our life. Another big one is pride. I think pride is probably one of the biggest idols that mankind struggles with. But you see, these idols don't exist unless we allow them to. We give them life. We give them life when we give them attention. They don't exist without our creating them and constantly feeding them. But God is different. God remains God. And He remains good and perfect and holy no matter what we do. If we choose not to believe in Him, if we choose not to respond to Him or to obey Him, guess what? He's still there and He doesn't change because He doesn't need us to exist. 
but we need Him. So where did we come from? A Creator. We came from the Creator. We came from God. But why? Why are we here? That's another popular question, isn't it? Look at verses 26 through 27 of Acts chapter 17. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. We'll get to that last sentence in a second. Why are we here? God wants us to seek and find Him. That's why we're here. If you want a purpose for your life, that's it. To seek God and to find Him. He set the course of the world into motion and designed it so that we could and would search and find Him. This is, of course, the opposite of the game hide-and-seek. When you play hide-and-seek, you hide for the purpose of not being found. But that's not God. Because God wants to be found, and He's not hiding. He's there. He's present. And as Paul Paul said towards the end there, He is near. But we need to each seek our Creator. We each possess the ability and the possibility to seek Him. And as such, I think we're obligated to seek Him. Because He is our Creator, and He created us for that purpose. If you create a watch for the purpose of telling time, and it doesn't tell time, what do you do with it? You either fix it, or you throw it out. God created us to seek Him and find Him. And if we don't do that, what should the Creator do? Either fix it or throw us out. And see, God sent Jesus to fix it. And if you don't follow Him, then you're going to get thrown out. Wherever we find ourselves in life, physically or situationally, it is always an opportunity to seek God and to seek His will. Even in the darkest times of our lives when we feel the depression that may be crushing in or the anxieties that overwhelm us, it is an opportunity to seek and find God. If there is ever a better opportunity in life to seek and find God, it is when we are at our lowest, when we need Him the most. If you've ever read the poem, the Footsteps poem, I'm sure many of us have read the poem, where there was he's walking along the beach and he looks back and he says, well, you were walking with me, but sometimes there were just one set of footprints. When I was going through really tough times, there was just one set of footprints. Why did you leave me? And God said, I didn't leave you. I was carrying you. So, if God wants us to find Him, how can we find Him? Go back to Psalms. Look at Psalm 19, verse 1 through 2. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. Creation 
Creation reveals God and His nature to us. We can look around us and see the beauty that God is. Now, go down a few more verses to verses uh, 7 through 9. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. The Word of God reveals His will, and it reveals His expectations to us as well. Wherever we are in the world, doesn't matter where we are, we can look around us and we can see God and He can be verified. Wherever we find ourselves in this life, we can always access His will and learn how we are to please Him by examining His Word. That's why we should study the Scriptures daily, to write them on our hearts. And we can say we see God in nature. It's easy to say that. But one question that many struggle with in connection to that is where is God? If He's all around us, why can't I see Him? Why, why, you know, I, I can't physically see this singular being that there is. Where is He? Well, let's continue in Acts chapter 17. We'll start at the end of 27 there. Yet He is actually not far from each of us. For in Him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed His offspring. Now I love this section of Paul's sermon because he takes what they know, what they've read, what they've, some of them have probably written, and says... I know what you're looking for. So remember, Paul's audience has been told basically, you don't know him, but you know that you need him, and you are seeking him, and you are missing him. Now Paul says, he is near us and wants to be nearer, still nearer. He is near, but he wants to be nearer. God is all-powerful. He is sovereign. He is above all nations. He is above all time, all eras. And yet He makes Himself available to us. He has done everything in His power, everything possible, to provide the opportunity for a relationship with us. Paul references two pagan poets uh, who many, as I mentioned in the audience, would have recognized. And if you have footnotes in your Bible, they probably speak of uh, Epimenides of Crete and uh, Eratus, Eratus. Okay, two poets that he quotes from there. Often, if in your Bible, if you have them tabbed over in the Scripture, it's often referencing Old Testament Scripture. But he's not; he's referencing pagan poetry. And what's interesting about this is that it shows us something fascinating. That these Greek scholars, they don't believe in the true God. But their writings reveal they know there is something or someone greater who is responsible for us. 
In him we live and move and have our being. We know there is greater source of life. We know that because we see it in the scriptures. The Greeks know it because they see it around them. They see it happening. They don't understand it. They can't wrap their head around it. It says we, we are indeed his, his offspring. Paul's basically saying you may not know him, but you know that you need him and are missing him. Look at Psalm 139. Look at verses 1 through 4 here. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways, even before a word is on my tongue. Behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You see, our increasing loneliness as mankind in general, is evidence of our relational nature that comes from God and our, our constant search for companionship and relationship. David reveals God's nearness to us is in a personal and intimate way in that God knows our minds and our hearts. David also says that God is inescapable. He is so near to us that there is nowhere we can go that He isn't already there. Now some people may look at that and be like, ooh, I don't like that. I find comfort in that. Does the God who is so great and powerful that He doesn't need anything... He doesn't need us to exist, yet He desires for us to know Him. He is near us and has been patient. Uh, He's been patient with us. Does this sound like a God who is harsh or unreasonable? Which way do you think about God? Does what you believe shape truth for you? Or does truth shape what you believe? And I think that is a fundamental question that many of us need to answer in our own lives. And I think it's something that many people need to answer before coming to Christ. Because in many denominations and other faith practices, belief shapes the truth or what they call truth. What they believe shapes it. And anything that you present to them that counters their belief, even though it's truth, they reject because their truth is shaped by their beliefs. But you see, that's what Paul addresses in verse 29 of Acts 17. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. What they believe, they believe in Thor, let's say. I know that's Roman, right? Or Norse. That's Norse, I think, yeah. Let's just say someone believes in Thor, that he's the god of thunder. 
He's only the God of thunder because they hear the thunder and think, oh, somebody had to create that. Something had to create that. Something greater than me had to create that noise. So they created Thor to do that. But it was what they believed that formed that image, not the truth. What Paul is presenting is the truth. So we know where we come from. We know why we're here and we know where God is. So what about when we're done here? What about when we're done? Where are we going? Look at verse 31. Don't worry, we'll come back to 30. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Things God has already done in the past, they have upcoming results for the future. There's your deep thought for the day. I want you to, I want you to note there are three has in that scripture. Has done this. Okay? There are three of them. God has fixed a day. He has appointed one man by which he will judge, and he has given everyone assurance by raising Jesus from the dead. These are all things that have been done, but have future results. All of this means that things have been set in motion. The clock is ticking down. It's counting down to a fixed day and a time which is known only by the Father, but we know that it's coming because Scripture tells us that. We all know what will happen on that day and the standard by which we will be judged. And how do we know those things? Because the Bible tells us. But none of it matters if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead. Because that's the assurance. Without Jesus being raised from the dead, there is no assurance and there is no confidence and no need for us to even be here today if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then nothing matters. But since He did raise from the dead, then everything God says matters. And every warning that he gives us should be heeded. Every truth should be heeded and obeyed. Or else. Right? Paul tells the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10, he says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now some look at this verse as harsh, They look at it in fear. But this verse reminds reminds us that it's not a day to be feared, but it is one that we should anticipate with joy if we know we are in Christ and we have lived for Him. So far we've looked at four great questions. They're questions we've all asked, and these may be questions you may be asked in regards to your faith at some point. 
But why is it important for us to know these things? Why does it matter? 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5, Paul says, Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. We have been blessed with many things in our lives. Some of them we probably take for granted. I think one of the things that we take for granted is the, the freedom that we have to gather together on Sundays or any time of the week to worship God, to study His Word, and to even have His Word with us. Some places in the world would burn that book in a minute because it goes against the government's doctrine or what, what have you. We take advantage of, of the fact that we have roof over our head to worship rather than sitting outside in the, the heat. We have air conditioning. I don't take that for granted. I love air conditioning. But when we enjoy the great things of life, we need to know who to thank and to remember that if it's something that we caused in some capacity, that we're not the ones taking credit for it. Because it's God who provided us the talent, the skills, and the ability to do whatever it is that we've done. I find it so refreshing when I hear athletes get interviewed after a big game or something like that, and they, the first thing they say when the reporter asks them, you know, tell us about your you know, no-hitter or whatever, and they're like, first of all, I just want to give credit and glory to God. I mean, that's, I, you don't hear that a whole lot these days. And when you do hear it, it kind of takes you by surprise, and then you smile and think, ah, that's nice to hear. We also need to know that when we face difficulties, who it is that stays with us and has promised us that there is more than just this life. And this is what Paul explains to the Romans in Romans 8, verse 18. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of the, this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And I know that I mentioned depression earlier. And I know that depression in many cases is a clinical thing and, and is something that is oftentimes out of the control of the person who's dealing with it. But I often find that in Scripture there is so much hope that wipes depression away for me. I've struggled with depression. But when I think about this verse in Romans 8, 18, whatever's going on right now, tough week, bad day at work, kids are screaming, won't stop screaming, five minutes later they're still screaming, the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The things that seem difficult now, Five, ten years down the road, we probably won't even care about them or remember them. But I know that in eternity, it's not going to matter at all. There's no more tears. There's no more pain. Third, we need to know how to please the one who made us. How to enjoy the relationship that he offers and how to be, how to be judged righteously on the last day. So if we know who God is, what He has done to make Himself known, and what He has promised about the future, what then are we supposed to do? Go back to Acts 17, verses 29 through 30. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being has, uh, is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to what? Repent, 
Repent has a root uh, meaning of submission and surrender. It is a complete turning over of everything. It's what repentance uh, is. The audience in Athens needed to repent and turn from their belief in the many, many idols that they followed and worshipped and believed. They couldn't believe in the one man and follow the one man, Jesus, and still make room in their hearts for these man-made gods. God had been patient, despite man's ignorance about his, about his nature, about who He is. But now that His Son had come to earth to make God fully known, now that He had come and done that, then it is time to repent and turn to Him. Consider Peter's words in 2 Peter 3, verse 9. He says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. I think sometimes people look at Jesus and they look at this verse here in Peter and and perhaps even what Paul is saying here on Mars Hill and think, God is patient with me. So when the time comes at the end of times, you know, and, and we're standing at the judgment seat, then He's going to be patient with me. The time for patience is now. He is patient with you, but there is an ending to 2 Peter 3, verse 9. He doesn't wish that any should perish, meaning that you could perish. You could fall on the wrong path. But that all should reach repentance. If people don't repent, if people don't obey, if people don't submit to the will of God and obey His commands, then they will perish. That's what that verse does when you reverse the things around a little bit. This truth uh, is essential. It's fundamental to the Christian faith. Repentance is necessary. It is required by God. And how we respond to this truth is shown by these people in Athens, but it's also shown by the disciples after Christ was raised from the dead. So as we close out this, this, uh, this morning, I want us to consider the three responses that are found in Acts chapter 17, verses 32 through 34. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. So there are three responses to Paul's message, the first of which some mocked him. The disciples did the same, uh, something similar to the women who came and reported about the empty tomb. Turn over to Luke chapter 24. <clears throat> and we see all three of these examples here in Luke 24. Uh, look at verses 10 through 11. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna, the Mary, uh, Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. 
an idle tale, meaning a lie, meaning just babbling, they're out of their mind, that sort of thing. They didn't believe them. And so they ignored it. Another thing that happens on Mars Hill is that there are some who wanted to hear more. Look at verse 5 of Luke 24. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? And in verse 24, Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but him they did not see. They wanted to see it with their own eyes. But they didn't just want to see the empty tomb. They wanted to see Jesus. And so those who desire to hear more, I first read that as they wanted to study more. They wanted to learn more. They wanted to get more. They, they, they had doubts. right? They were struggling with, with what it was that they were being told. And that's what we see the disciples struggling with as well. But Paul doesn't say, okay, yeah, come back next week and we'll have another study. No, he left their midst. He left them. But there were some who still believed and followed. And so Paul had given them everything they needed to know and everything they needed to hear to believe and to follow, but yet they still had doubt, just as the disciples did. Look at verse, 20, uh, verse 12 of Luke 24. We see those who believed and followed there. Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. That's all Peter needed to see. He just needed to see the empty tomb. He didn't need to see Jesus. He didn't need to put his finger in the hole in his hand. He saw the empty tomb and believed. And just like those on Mars Hill, what Peter had told them was enough for them to follow and believe. So we know there is a fixed day. And it's coming. And it's a day that we're all going to face. That fixed day will either be the greatest day or the worst day. All throughout Scripture, you always hear about two paths. There's the path of the righteous, the path of the wicked. You have the path of the wise, the path of the folly. You have the the narrow path that leads to life and the wide path that leads to destruction. There is no middle ground. There is no middle path. There is no bridge that connects them or anything like that. There's two paths. How that day is for us, how that day is for us, will be determined by how we respond to Jesus, how we respond to the message of the gospel. So, how will you respond? Do you need to respond this morning to repent and to be baptized into Christ's death, burial, and resurrection? Because there is coming a day, a day that no one knows when it will happen. It could be tomorrow. It could be today. Only the Father knows the date and the time that it will occur. But it's coming. And what a day that will be. And I hope to see you all in heaven. So if we can assist you this morning with any other need that you have, whether it be for baptism or anything else, we uh, wish that you come forward now while we stand and sing and make that request known.